Hi, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. And today we're delighted to be talking with Dr. Pauline Boss. She's a professor emeritus at the University of Minnesota. She's practiced family therapy for 45 years and is a world-renowned educator and researcher who coined the term ambiguous loss in the 1970s. This practical theory guides therapists, families, and individuals to ease the pain and trauma for various kinds of ambiguous losses and across different cultures. In 1999, her famous book, Ambiguous Loss, Learning to Live with Unresolved Grief, introduced this phenomenon to the lay public. And now in 2022, Dr. Boss offers another novel perspective on loss in her book, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. She encourages all of us to increase our tolerance for ambiguity and our capacity for resilience so we can express a normal grief and still move forward in our lives with a sense of meaning. So Dr. Boss, welcome. We're honored to have you speak with us as an advocate for women aging. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. Well, let's begin with um, what ambiguous loss means and the kinds of losses that this might entail. Well, simply put, ambiguous loss is an unclear loss. Uh, there's no verification that the loss is permanent. It's not like having a death certificate. It's just unanswered questions. Um, there are two kinds of ambiguous loss that I've studied. Uh, and that the first one is physical, uh, and the second one will be psychological. Physical ambiguous losses, catastrophic examples of that would be um, loved ones missing in action as soldiers, uh, loved ones missing in action as we see on television now with uh, mothers and their children saying goodbye to their fathers in Ukraine, who the fathers stay behind to fight. Neither one knows where the other one is or if they're still alive. Uh, and other catastrophic examples come from natural disasters, mudslides, floods, etc. More common examples of physical ambiguous loss would be divorce and adoption. Uh, now, psychological ambiguous loss is when the person is physically there, but they're psychologically absent. For example, if they have Alzheimer's disease or some one of the other over 80 kinds of dementia, or if they have addictions uh, or a serious mental illness. So, they're not always the way they used to be. More common examples of psychological ambiguous loss would be um, people who are preoccupied with their devices um, or people who, you know, you've seen them at a restaurant where a couple will be sitting together having a nice meal, but both of them are focused on their phones. Uh, so preoccupations and obsessions would be more common examples. Uh, I also forgot with physical absence that that would be family alienation where family members don't speak to each other anymore. So Dr. Boss, um, in your books, you talk, you do talk about loss through death of a loved one. And while that is, that has the, that's a physical loss, how, what makes that an ambiguous loss? Is, what, is it because there's unresolved issues? With that person? It, well, that's a good question. Technically, uh, if there's a death certificate, that's not an ambiguous loss. Uh, it has some clarity and some official verification to it. But I make the point 
when someone asks me, is there ambiguity in death as well? My answer is quite often there is. And that would be unanswered questions. You know, should I have done this? Could I have done this better, et cetera? Um, I wonder where they are now, et cetera. So um, those are sort of mild questions that we all have. But with certain kinds of death, there is more ambiguity than that. Um, for example, when a, there's, there are questions for suicide, uh, especially if there wasn't a note. Uh, there are questions for murder. There are questions for uh, being killed by friendly fire if you're in the military. Um, and there are questions often when babies and infants die, young, young children and so on. So some, some deaths have more questions than others. Um, but then the mild ones we have after, you know, we've even been with the person when they died are quite normal. So there's a, there's a bit of ambiguity there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of a dear friend of mine whose husband died and requested to be buried at sea because he'd been with the Coast Guard. And while she, of course, honored his wishes, she it was a, a, a difficulty to to watch that boat sail away to take him out into the you know into the depth of the ocean, and so I was wondering if that is a, a, a kind of an example of an ambiguous loss. Well, I suppose it is for her because she would have liked to have a grave or someplace she could visit every day. Mm -hmm. So yes, it would be. It's an unusual one, but it is yeah. an ambiguous loss. Um, she can go, of course, to the shore of wherever he was buried, but that's that's a large body of water, and and it isn't quite the same. So you're right, Dr. Boss. I'm wondering how what got you onto this particular topic. I know there are so many that you're known for. What what got you into ambiguous loss, and and then of course your recent book, The Myth of Closure. Well, there's, I, in retrospect, I think there are two reasons. Uh, first, I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin studying with um, a famous psychiatrist, Carl Whitaker, and he would see a family uh, every week, and we would sit around and watch him do family therapy. The child was the identified patient. And this was in the 1970s, so the fathers were angry about being there. And they said that the, father, the children are mother's business. Why am I here? Yeah. Uh, and so I wrote a paper on psychological father absence in intact families. That was my first academic paper. And the professor I was studying with at the time said to me, he was in theory development, said to me, that's good. But he said it happens to more than fathers think about a more general term than psychological father absence. So I went home and eventually, after some long thinking, uh, came up with the term ambiguous loss because that fits anybody, not just fathers, where they're there but not there. But in retrospect, I grew up in an immigrant family, a Swiss-American family, and my father was the immigrant, and my mother's parents were immigrants from Switzerland. And I lived in a community, New Glarus, Wisconsin, all immigrants. 
And they were all pining for the homeland and pining for the mountains and their families. And I think I grew up around it. And that's why I probably studied it in graduate school. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. You've, you've as Gail noted, you've, cut your, you've studied this phenomenon from so many different perspectives. It has a really wide reach. You know, it's, uh-huh. as you said, it's the, it's the physical loss, it's psychological losses, it's um, catastrophic losses, uh, the pandemic being uh, the most current, one of the most current, Ukraine. But just what's been most revelatory to you in your well, work? Let me say that I've only studied, I only did research uh, on the primarily on soldiers missing in action, their families left behind. And then in the 90s on veterans who had Alzheimer's disease, and I worked, studied with their families. Most of other people have picked up research and done research on a myriad of other kinds of things they think is ambiguous loss, and they're usually right. Uh, So that I need to give credit to two different generations now, because I'm 87, who have done research on ambiguous loss, not just me. You can almost Google ambiguous loss and whatever you're interested in, ambiguous loss and infertility, ambiguous loss and family alienation. and it'll pop up, but the research won't be by me. Uh, the theory development is what I've been focusing on. Um, and I forgot the rest of your question. Can you repeat it? Well, I was just wondering what, if, if there's, during the course of your theory development, and as you've um, monitored the research that's being done on the ambiguous loss, if there are things that have just become very revelatory to you, that just stood out that you have big surprises maybe? The huge surprise, the biggest surprise of all is that across cultures, when there's ambiguous loss, very serious and painful ambiguous loss like the tsunami in Japan uh, or uh, kidnappings and so on, is how people are resilient and how they can go on to live pretty good lives despite this tragic a kind of loss that they're experiencing. So, if, in fact, that's the joy of this work, is to see how people can live with it and go on and make sense of what is a senseless loss. Um, it, it remains ambiguous sometimes forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, they seem to be able to do what I call both and thinking. You know, I both had a terrible kinds of event happen to me, and I can have a good life despite that. Or often they will say, I'm going to ha- live a good life in honor of the missing person. Mm-hmm. What brings to mind, of course, is the Holocaust. Exactly. Yes. That the Holocaust is a very big example of ambiguous losses because many people did not know where their loved ones ended up or where they might might have been or whether they were really dead or alive they had no it was not knowing right um there's i i just wanted to to show our people that this is the book we're going to be talking about in more depth now but you mentioned um about 
maybe even aging itself, the aging process is, is a form of ambiguous loss. Can you elaborate on that? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was, I was thinking about that. As, uh, I was getting older as well um, and became a widow during the pandemic. Um, my husband died, not, not from COVID, but from a stroke. <clears throat> that as we age, we lose some capacities and some abilities that we've had before. You know, I can't walk five miles anymore. Um, or um, there are various things that I could do and now I can't do. And, and so that's a personal ambiguous loss, which is a sort of a new, a new idea I came up with, that it doesn't have to be a family ambiguous loss. Mm-hmm. It can be a personal ambiguous loss uh, about something you valued in yourself. For example, the loss of eyesight or the loss of hearing uh, are 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 losses, but you're still alive. Um, So they are physical ambiguous losses. And the psychological ambiguous losses that are personal, of course, would be loss of your memory or your cognitive abilities. You know, we're we're not as smart as we used to be. We're not as cognizant uh, uh, and quick thinking as we used to be. Uh, While that's natural, it still is something you notice. And it is a kind of ambiguous loss. I would call that one a more commonplace one, not not tragic. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I so think the loss of memory is tragic, by the way. Yes. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Let's um let's hear more about your about your book, The Myth of Closure. About what uh, what are some of the main issues that you address? Well, um, I I give a a review of ambiguous loss in it, but I'm really talking about something I learned from, you know, that over 40 years of working with families with ambiguous loss. I learned that they they don't have closure. They they don't even know if the person is dead or alive or where their remains might be. And so I became very interested in that idea of no closure and that some of these families live very well without it. And I realized that closure is a misnomer. Uh, Closure is a perfectly good word to use when a road closes uh, or a business deal closes. Perfectly good word in real estate, but it's very harmful and, and hurtful to use in human relationships. Uh, so the book is primarily about that. And then I go into, uh, bec- because I wrote the book uh, after my husband died and while I was sequestered from COVID, it became a different book than I had planned on before all of this. Mm-hmm. And so I included some things that were happening around me, such as the killing of George Floyd, not far from where I live in Minneapolis. And, and the issue of racism, it could racism be a cause by the ambiguous losses generations ago. And, and I haven't done research on this, but my hypothesis would be the answer is yes. Families were sold away from each other on the auction block and, and um, not even recognized as a family. Mm-hmm. And some of that trauma is passed on, either we say by nature or nurture, the field of epigenetics is studying that now. And, and indeed, it can have an effect across the generations, uh, whereby the triggers of fight or flight response are shorter, or, or at least the people may be if, if the um, 
racism is still present in their lives, um, the fight or flight responses don't turn off. They're on alert all the time. And, and therefore we have trigger responses. Um, so that's in the book um, to talk about that and how that might affect us all. And then I talk about resilience as well and um, about the way to live with this kind of um, no closure. What do we do instead of seeking closure? So I give an update <clears throat> on grief. And, um, and so what we do instead of seeking closure is we seek meaning. We should mix some meaning or purpose out of our losses. And, and, the, and it can be working for some social change, uh, as I did after my little brother died of polio the summer before the sock vaccine came out. Our family went door to door collecting dimes for the March of Dimes effort, which was uh, encouraging research, which indeed did come. Uh, and then I talk a bit about the grief, a normal grief. Primarily, I'm concerned that grief is becoming uh, medicalized. And grief is a normal response to loss. Uh, it should not be considered an illness. And it is right now. And I think we, it is not depression. Grief is not the same as depression. Indeed, a minority of people who are grieving do fall into a clinical depression. And that minority needs to see, seek professional help and perhaps medical help and perhaps medication. But the majority of people grieve normally although it will be different based on culture and all kinds of things like that. <clears throat> so they may not grieve the way we think is normal. Um, but what we need to do is know the difference, therefore, between sadness of grief and depression. And I make that distinction in the book. Sadness is a normal reaction to loss. It is, it, it, you feel um, sad, you feel down, you may lose your appetite, you may have to sleep more, you may not feel like going to work, but eventually it's, it lessens. It's an oscillation, they call it, of going up and down, back and forth. You'd call it good days and bad days. And they get farther and farther apart, the bad days as time goes on. But even 20 years from now, you may see something or hear something and be reminded of the person you lost and have a tear or two. That's normal grief. Uh, the one thing that would label it as not normal needing professional help would be if there is self-loathing in it. Uh, if you're really knocking yourself with guilt and shame uh, and, and you can't function. You can't function after six months and a year. You're still frozen in place. You would need help. Yes. But I give more accurate de details in the book about that. And, and I end the book um, on saying that we will not get back to normal after the pandemic. 
Too much has happened. It was an epic experience for the world for two and a half years, at least. And therefore, change is coming. Change has already happened. And that frequently there's chaos after something like this happened. And indeed, there is chaos here right now in the globe, on the world stage. And that I was hoping the family of the world, or the human race, could come to some peaceful place at the end of all of this. And I talk about other episodes in history that have been terrible. And out of it comes some sort of negotiation that gives us another period of peace and quiet and pretty much um, contentment for a while. And that's sort of how things go, uh, up and down, in and out. And I was hoping that that would come too. Um, and I end the book on, on that note. I don't have it here right now. But, uh, oh, yes, I do. I could, I could read the last few lines that sort of make that point, if you'll allow me to. Please. Yes, I Okay. It's right here. Okay. If we believe that people experiencing loss should just get over it, then we have to shut down our own ability to feel, and then we are terribly alone. May we have the courage of flexibility to change, May the pandemic virus and its variants become manageable, less deadly. May more people pay attention to facts and have their children vaccinated. And finally, may those of us whose loved ones died during this time never again be told that we must find closure. Mm. So true. It's very powerful, really. And, and that's such a misnomer, isn't it? That it's a misnomer. Over, yes. You should get over your grief. Yes. You, you, you should do it within a year or. <laughs> right, within a time period. And, uh, yes, there's no timeline. Wow. We don't have to get over it. We have to find meaning in it and live with it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when people, let's say, have a murder in the family and then the the culprit goes to court and he's found or she's found guilty frequently the media will say they now have closure no they don't they have justice mm -hmm. that's not closure it, those are two different things for sure i appreciated your example on your book of anderson cooper who who called someone out on that and said no it is not closure that's not what's what he does that all the time about. I think because he suffered so many painful losses himself, he's the only remaining member of his family. And uh, he knows, he knows. And yes, he called someone out on a panel on CNN. Uh, bless his heart. I, yes, I do write about Anderson Cooper. I believe in the forward um, as one of the few media persons who, uh, who will call you out if you use the word closure. Mm -hmm. uh, and all too many still use it, and it is a misnomer. It's, it's absolutely the wrong word. It's okay to use if a road is closing due to a storm or if a business deal has been closed. Mm -hmm. 
you know, our, our audience, of course, is um, we feature women over 70 for, as our podcast guests. I think most of our listeners are in their 60s and onward. And so as a, as a group, a large group, we're likely to experience loss of many different kinds. Yes. yes. Um, and so I'm wondering about how do we, you talked about resilience. And, and, and can you just define that for us? And how can we help each other be resilient without giving these wrong messages? There are a lot of views on resilience, and mine, of course, is focused on ambiguous loss. Resilience is the ability to be flexible in times of high stress when you don't quite know what's happening, like the pandemic. Uh, did we bend? Did, were we flexible? Most of us were. We, we stayed in our homes. We did everything unlike what we were accustomed to doing, and we got vaccinated or we did whatever. Uh, we were told would help us to stay safe. Mm -hmm. That's resilience. Um, and so resilience can be flexibility, but it has another aspect to it. It should also have growth from adversity. In other words, those of us who've gone through this and were resilient, that is, we didn't have our own way, so we did something different, like baking bread <laughs> and uh, whatever else, uh, we, we didn't have our own way. We bent like a tree in a storm, a sapling in a storm. And we hope, we hope that we're stronger for it, that you can look back on it and say, by gum, I did that. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel I'm stronger for it. Uh, now, I'm old enough to have lived through World War II. I was uh, in junior high at that time. And... And that was a terrible time. And it went on for four years, at least. And, and then I remember coming out of it and the church bells ringing and everybody dancing in the streets and so on. Uh, we were proud that we came out of it. And of course, there were many deaths and many people wounded. Um, we were stronger for having, for having survived it. We knew we couldn't have our way. So my view, well, there is also a caution about resilience, and that is that resilience assumes agency, and not everybody has it. So people in poverty did not have agency, did not have enough mastery to be resilient, and so we should be aware that sometimes the problem needs to be solved, like hunger, poverty, and so on, healthcare availability. Those problems need to be solved before people who don't have those things can be resilient. So we have to be very careful uh, about that. And if the same people are expected to be resilient all the time, uh, then they begin to have that fight or flight uh, reaction on all the time. And uh, that's not healthy. That will cut lifespan. So for me, with my work with ambiguous loss, specifically, I think resilience is increasing our tolerance for ambiguity, for not having our own way, for, for not having precision, that life is less than precise. Human relationships are messy. Um, 
Death and loss are messy. There are no stages to grief, by the way. Those are neat. Even Kubler-Ross said in her last books um, that, that dying is messy. It's not in stages. She recanted on the stages. But people still like stages and phases and whatever they're called because they think that if you get through one, two, three, you're done. It won't hurt anymore. And if you've ever had a loss, you know it still hurts. Mm -hmm. It'll hurt periodically now and then over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. so, so a tolerance for ambiguity is the resilience that I'm talking about. And that's not easy for many of us in this culture. It's a more Eastern way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I write about how to do that. And you also, um, in your book, you talk about, I think it's six... Um, guidelines. Right. Six guidelines, yes, for, for the resilience to live with loss. Right. And you, you've, you've mentioned a couple of those. Uh, do you want to highlight any others? Well, the two, two most important would be finding meaning and also discovering new hope. Uh, and let me say, I mean something new to hope for. You can't continue to hope for the status quo, for the missing person to come back, for your loved one with Alzheimer's disease to come back to normal thinking. And often for loved ones who are physically missing, for them to come back and they don't. So you have to find something new to hope for. And that's very important because I think we can't live without hope. Uh, in between those two, and by the way, they're circular and messy. Uh, you can, they're recur uh, recursive. You can go back and forth and in and out with these six. Um, and so tempering mastery, we talked about that we sometimes don't, um, don't have an answer to, to a question and there won't be one. And so if we're very high in control, we need to let go of that. And on the other hand, if there are people who don't have much agency, we need to empower them to have more mastery. And then there's identity. Your identity changes with ambiguous loss. And the, the wives of missing soldiers would say, you know, after many years, am I still a wife? Uh, and they're not a widow either. And so it's a very important question about who am I? And you have to redefine it at that time. And we talk about attachment, which is more a continuing bonds. The research on loss today is focused more that the attachment, the continuing bonds with loved ones who die or, and of course are missing, can continue. Uh, they do not have to be detached, as Freud said. Um, that they can continue, but of course we recognize that they're transformed, that the person isn't alive anymore. Mm -hmm. But we can still love them. I still use my mother's and grandmother's recipes and I wear my sister's jewelry and so on. Um, that's continuing bonds. Mm -hmm. It's okay to remember. You do not have to close the door. And even, by the way, for people who remarry, mm -hmm. um, you can still remember the first person you loved. Um, they are all 
a part of who you are. And the other question that came up to me is how about somebody who was abusive to you? And they're part of who you are too, but you would, you would now know how not to be a parent uh, from an abusive parent. I don't want to be that way. And therefore, you're probably a better parent for having seen the negative example. Mm -hmm. uh, so all the people we've been attached to and we've loved over time are part of who we are. That makes so much sense. Very important. So um, your own work, are you, what are you working on now or next? Well, right now I'm just doing a lot of training for the next generation. Actually, there are two generations of uh, scholars and therapists below me. So I'm working to put something in place so the training can continue. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't thought about writing. Uh, if I would write, I might write uh, short stories or uh, I think essays rather. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so, but I, I also want to travel. Uh, I haven't been able to travel the last two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And before that, because my husband couldn't walk. Um, and so I'm, I'm eager to travel and have some plans in place already. And, and to see what I can do at 87, I'll soon be 88. And to do that now, while I can. Uh -huh. Where do you plan to go? Well, I have reservations to go um, on the Danube River uh, and uh, on a, a boat trip with the Minnesota Orchestra people mm -hmm. and, uh, and my daughter. And then I'm going to Switzerland to see my first cousins. I still oh. have three. Uh, as I said, it was an immigrant family. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there are a lot of relatives in Switzerland that I need to go and see again and see that absolutely beautiful country. Yes. And then um, next summer, I've already made a reservation for a train trip to Glacier Park. Uh, mm -hmm. I like trains. I haven't been on a train for quite a while. And we'll see where else. And of course, I just went to New York City which was a sentimental journey because my husband and I did that every spring for many years. Mm -hmm. And then we'd see some plays and go to the opera and museums and restaurants. Mm -hmm. And so I went, I wanted to go alone just to see if I could do it. Mm -hmm. Although a grandchild who's going to MIT came in for the weekend to visit with me. Yes. And, and I, did pretty much the same path that my husband and I did, but with friends in New York. Mm -hmm. And um, as I said, it was sentimental journey, but it was um, satisfying to me because I could do it. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure after being indoors for so long that I would be able to do it. So. Very inspiring, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Any last words? We could listen to you for, for hours. Yes. Thank you. Well, I just hope that your listeners take a look at the book and know that while I'm an academic, um, I, that this book is written for the general public. It's an easy read, and it's written in first person, not in academies. Uh, but it's based on academic topics. Um, and I so there are references in the back if you really want to know where all these ideas
came from their reference, but I don't bother with them as in the writing in the front of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's a quick read, it's an easy read, but I hope it's powerful for you. Well, I have read it and it is incredibly powerful. And I have every, almost every page I had, I was like dog-eared because <laughs> then I had to stop doing that because I thought I'll just have to go back and read it again. <laughs> well, thank you for, for having me and for uh, liking the book. You know, you, when, when you're writing alone, you know, in an apartment like this, you never know if anybody's interested in it. <clears throat> in fact, one of the things that I think writers do is you say, you know, who would be interested in this? You feel very alone. So thank you. I don't feel oh, so alone. I'm recommending it to everyone. <laughs> so thank you. And thank you so much for, for being with us. It's just been a, a true honor to have you. Thank, thank you. you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Paula. Thank you. Yes.